Okay, well, welcome to our second session uh, in our Academy series entitled Jesus's Passion for Justice. Now, uh, last week, if you remember, we threw out a challenge uh, to ourselves as part of the church to stop seeing the gospel um, as all about us and how we can get to heaven when we die. And we discovered that by focusing most of our thinking on uh, the personal salvation thing, we have really distorted the gospel message that Jesus came to proclaim. And effectively, we've ignored whole chunks of the Bible, particularly uh, the prophetic books, but um, even more importantly, the message of Jesus. Now, we're going to have a closer look at Jesus' teaching tonight. And before we do that, I want to reread to you uh, that quote that I gave to you last week from um, N.T. Wright. Now, N.T. Wright is a former Bishop of Durham. He's the Chair of New Testament and Early Christianity Studies at the School of Divinity, Oxford University. And he's also a senior research fellow at Wycliffe Hall. So he's a world-respected uh, theologian and has written over 70 books. Uh, so he's not, he's not some loose cannon that I'm quoting you uh, this evening. So let's remind ourselves about what he said pertaining to the current workshops, because it really does go to the heart of what we're discussing in these three weeks. This is what he said. What has happened in the church over the past 200 years, so that's going back to the early 19th century, is that we have turned the kingdom of God into the hope for heaven after death, leaving the politicians and the economists and other power brokers of the Enlightenment to take over the running and, as it turns out, the ruining of the world. Kick God upstairs, make religion a matter of private piety, and then you can organise the world to your own advantage. And that's a great description of what has happened and how the church has really uh, laid aside some of its responsibilities in terms of, of presenting a full gospel message. So we have kicked God upstairs and thought, it's nothing, you know, he has nothing to say about how the world should be run and what the values of society uh, should be and how we uh, can make a difference. But the truth is, you know, that uh, he has got plenty to say and he has said it. He said it in this book. But the truth is, and tragically, that we as Christians and as the church have largely ignored what he had to say about these things. And we just concentrated uh, on those 
parts of the Bible that talks about getting our ticket to heaven. A subject, by the way, that the Bible has relatively little to say about. So this week we're going to be bringing God back downstairs, as it were, and more specifically Jesus, and discovering some of the things that he has to say about the injustices of the society in which he lived. And of course, uh, we can take from that lessons uh, for our current times. You know, the Bible is both spiritual and political. I hope you understand what I mean by that. Spiritual in the sense that it's about our relationship to God as individuals and as a community. But political in the sense that it's about God's passion for a different kind of world. One in which people have enough to live, where they're not discriminated against because of their appearance, uh, their skin colour, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their theology, or anything else. You see, justice can be understood as the social form of compassion, and as such is highly political. Political in the sense that it's concerned with the shaping and structuring of human societies, ranging from the family to society as a whole. And in this sense, uh, the Old Testament is pervasively political. And for Jesus, God's passion for justice was a central part, a central part of the kingdom of God and the gospel message. If only we will look, this can be clearly seen in Jesus' life and teaching. Take, for example, two of the most famous passages in the Gospels, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. As one commentator put it, heaven is in great shape, it's earth where the problems are. And the Lord's Prayer goes directly from the hope that God's kingdom will come to this earth in which we're living today, to requests for daily bread and forgiveness of debt, Matthew 6, 11 and 12. See, bread and debt were the two central uh, survival issues in people's lives in Jesus' day. Bread symbolised food, and having enough food was a constant struggle for probably 90% of the population in Palestine, people who did not belong to the privileged elite that we talked about last week. And debt was the number one fear amongst ordinary people because if they fell behind with their payments, they could have their land confiscated. And for the many to whom this 
had already happened, unpaid debts could result in being thrown into prison or alternatively sold into slavery. And that's what Matthew is talking about in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debts. You know, as we said last week, uh, we Christians have this weird habit of wanting to spiritualize everything. And so even here in the Lord's Prayer, we can't resist and we say what debt really means, you know, is our sins. And no, uh, Jesus is living in the real world. He is talking about the curse of debt that ordinary people were always facing. And he was proclaiming that the kingdom of God was in the nitty-gritty practical necessities of life, really good news for the poor. Not just the spiritually poor, but the poor. Those who barely had enough money to live. And, you know, this close connection between the kingdom of God and the well-being of the poor and hungry is taken up in Jesus' famous Beatitudes. And in the sixth chapter of Luke, we read this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Verses 20 to 23. See, in the kingdom of God, the poor will be blessed. The hungry will be filled. And those who weep will laugh. And given the context, you who weep does not probably doesn't refer to a bereavement or anything like that, but to the daily sorrow caused by the wretchedness of just daily life, you know, in the face of oppression and in need of the very basics uh, of life. And Luke clearly understands these statements in a material way rather than the purely a spiritual interpretation that the church often adopts. And this is shown to be true by the meaning of the uh, list of woes that immediately follows uh, what we've just read in verses 24 to 26. And this is what it says. It says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received uh, your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So the rich, uh, the full-bellied, the laughing and the well-regarded are obviously those doing very well under the system of the time, the domination system. However, says Jesus, the coming of the kingdom 
would be good news for the poor and the hungry and not for them. The kingdom involves a radical change in the social and political order and God's people, and this is a, so important, God's people are the ones who are called to do everything in their power to bring this about. We said last week, didn't we, that justice is in the very uh, DNA of the Bible. And so it's not surprising that it's also at the very heart of Jesus's gospel message. Now, we need to understand that Jesus advocated resistance to injustice in whatever form it took. Having said that, we will discover that the resistance that he did advocate was always, always non-violent, taking the form only of teaching, uh, but also of symbolic or prophetic acts of defiance. We've already seen from the Lord's Prayer and the Beatitudes that justice was at the very heart of his gospel, his good news. But his main teaching method, the parables, they consistently addressed the issues of injustice and the plea for justice. Take, for example, the parable of the vineyard and the tenants in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. See, the vineyard owner who leased his vineyard to the tenants sends his servant to collect his share of the harvest. And the scriptures tell us that the tenants beat him and they sent him away with nothing. And so uh, the vineyard owner sends other, another servant with, with the same result and a number of others whom they actually kill. And finally, he sends his son, thinking, well, if I send my son, I mean, the owner of the vineyard, uh, they will show him more respect. But they see this as their chance to take complete possession of the vineyard. And the scripture says, this is the heir, they said. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours, in verse 7. And so they killed the son. So what does this mean? What is the vineyard? Who are the tenants? And as in the book of Isaiah, the vineyard is Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 is all about uh, Israel as the vineyard. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. And the tenants who want to keep all the produce for themselves are the wealthy and the powerful, the elite uh, that we talked about last week who exploit the vineyard. And Mark understands this perfectly because he ends his account with this comment. He says, when they, the representatives of the temple authorities, realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. And this parable, you know, is often called the parable of the wicked tenants, and of course they are wicked. 
because they beat and they kill the servants of the son, of the vineyard owner. But their motivation is that they want all of the produce of the vineyard for themselves. And thus the parable will be better called the parable of the greedy tenants. And it's a clear uh, condemnation of the domination system uh, existing in the time of Jesus. The exploitation of the many by the few. Let's look at another episode of Jesus's life which is often misinterpreted. It follows straight after the parable that we've just read. Again in Mark 12 and verses 13 to 17 and it contains one of the best uh, best known sayings of Jesus when he said give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And this passage is quite often misunderstood to in the way that, that it's presented as giving Christians a clear demarcation line, if you like, between their obligations to God and their obligations to the governing authorities. When, however, we take, the account, we take account of the history and the context of this, it becomes clear that something else is actually going on here. And this episode is part of the continuing effort of the authorities to trap Jesus. These people, the, and they're named as the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Herodians being the supporters of King Herod, they say to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And so the question is skillfully posed, isn't it? If Jesus says, yes, it's okay to pay taxes to the emperor, he would therefore um, alienate uh, the, his Jewish followers. Uh, who, of course, resented uh, the imperial uh, rule of Rome. But if he said, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then he could be charged with sedition by the Romans. So what happens is that Jesus asks for a coin and is given one which bears the head of the emperor as well as his title, which was, again, as we referred to last week, his title was the Son of God. And he asks in verse 16, whose head and title is this? And they, of course, answer, well, it's the Emperor's, it's the Emperor's head and the Emperor's title. But you see, what has happened here is that Jesus, by asking for the coin, which would have been uh, a denarius, which was the Roman coined used to pay taxes, Jesus was emphasising the fact that he didn't have, uh, he didn't carry any such coins on his person. And in fact all devout Jews resented such coins and refused to carry them. So by highlighting the fact that the Pharisees carried and used a Roman coinage, he'd already discredited them in the eyes of the crowd. 
Now, as for his words, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, what did this mean? Jesus was saying it's the emperor's coin, go ahead, give it back to him and give to God what is God's. But he deliberately didn't answer the question as to whether they ought to pay Roman taxes or not. And the true meaning of what uh, he said lay, lies in the phrase, give to God what is God's. See, if Jesus was to be asked, what belongs to God? He would certainly have answered in line with the teaching of the Hebrew scriptures, which clearly teach that everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24 and verse 1. Therefore, if everything belongs to the Lord, what belongs to the emperor? Well, nothing. See, this is no meek and mild Jesus teaching people to distinguish between spiritual and temporal issues. This is the radical, political Jesus subtly and cleverly speaking against the domination system of his time. Now, by looking at some of these examples, we are being given pointers by the Lord as to the principles, I think, that we might adopt when we are facing injustice and discrimination today. Take, for example, Jesus' teaching on non-aggression. Some of the things that he said have been dismissed by many as encouraging Christians to become doormats. But this is not the case. Let's look at Matthew 5 and verse 39, which says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, his suggestion is that if someone hits you on the right cheek, you need to just turn your left cheek to him. But when Jesus was talking about being struck on the right cheek, he would have been assuming, first of all, that the person striking you was right-handed because uh, left-handed people were, were regarded with great suspicion in those days. And for many centuries, left-handed people were associated by the church with the devil and hence were severely persecuted. So such a blow to the right cheek would have been typically administered by the back of the right hand to a person's right cheek, which signified that the person doing the hitting was just 
He wasn't trying to knock him out or anything. He was just trying to insult the person, degrade them, humiliate them. And masters would typically backhand their wives or their slaves. And the point, just to put them in their place. So when Jesus says, if anyone strikes you, he was talking to people who were used to being humiliated. And he is saying to them, refuse to accept this punishment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. Now, to understand uh, the beauty of what Jesus is saying that here, you really need to sort of enact this out. And I know that when um, I taught this in the church some years ago, I got a couple of people to come up and, and enact this. So if you're at home and... Uh, you're with your spouse or your friend, uh, you, can, you can try this together. You see, by turning the other, the left cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use the right backhand again. You try doing that together, because it's, it's impossible to do. And the only way of striking again would be to use the right fist. But the problem in doing that is that the custom of the day, in the custom of the day, only equals fault with fists. And the last thing the master would want to do, of course, is to make the servant equal to him. And the only other way of striking the left cheek with the backhand would be to use the left hand. But this wasn't acceptable either because in the first century, as we've said, the left hand could only be used for unclean tasks. So the attacker, you see, had a problem. So by turning the other cheek then, the inferior is saying, I'm a human being just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I am your equal. I am a child of God. I won't take it anymore. Now, that's a form of defiance. And it's not a form of defiance that would avoid trouble necessarily or give the person an easy life. He might well get a flogging for his pains. But the point is that he refuses the path of meek submission, which is really what his master is after. See, Jesus never intended us to become doormats. To victims, he says, stand up for yourselves, assert your humanity, but don't answer the oppressor in kind. Find a new third way, if you like, that is neither cowardly nor violent reprisal. Let's look at another example here. Luke chapter 6 and verse 29. Jesus says that if someone wants to sue you and takes your coat, he says, let him have your tunic as well. Now in those days, people had typically had a coat, their outer garment, and a tunic was their under garment. So what's all this about? 
Well, this is a court scene where a peasant is being sued for a debt. And under that, this domination system, uh, peasants were routinely exploited uh, by high taxation and pitifully low wages uh, by the rich elite. And under the Jewish law, uh, which you could read about in Deuteronomy chapter 24, a creditor, person who is owed money, could take a person's outer garment, his coat if you like, as collateral for an unpaid debt. But Deuteronomy tells us that this had to be returned by nightfall so that the poor person had somewhere to sleep and typically people would sleep and they would use their outer coats to cover them as a blanket, keep them warm. And so Jesus' advice to the poor man to give up his tunic, his undergarment as well, seems strange, doesn't it? This would mean stripping off all his clothing and walking out of the court stark naked. And as you may know, nakedness was a taboo in Judaism and significantly shame fell more on the uh, fell less on the naked party than on the p person causing the nakedness. And you can read about that in Genesis 9 and verse 20 to 27, when Ham exposed his father, father's uh, nakedness, Noah's nakedness. And we'll be talking about that next week. So by stripping the debtors, by stripping um, the debtors' shame, was brought upon the creditor. Can you see what's happening here? Again, it's one of these ironic situations. Imagine the amusement in the court. There stands the rich creditor, covered with shame, and the poor, you know, with the poor debtor's uh, coat in one hand and his underclothes in the other hand. And the tables, of course, had been turned on the creditor. The poor debtor had no hope of winning the case, of course, because the law was loaded in favour of the rich people, the elite. But he, the poor man, had risen above his shame and had registered a stunning protest against the injustice of the time that had, had created his debt. He had said, in effect, do you want my robe? you want my coat? Here, take everything. Now you've got everything except my body. Is that what you'll take next? And this is profound teaching by Jesus on how to confront injustice and oppression without resorting to violence. And it would take, of course, it would take guts. <laughs> it would take guts uh, to do this. Now, let's just look at one final example uh, of how Jesus taught these things. Back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 41. And Jesus says this, If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's all this about? Well, Jesus is referring here to the practice of limiting to a single mile the amount of forced labour that Roman soldiers could inflict 
upon ordinary people. So, so the, the, the law said that um, whoever was found on the streets uh, could be approached by a Roman soldier and he could coerce them to carry his luggage or whatever he wanted carried for a mile. As was Simon, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross, you remember. And historians tell us that whole, when they saw the Roman soldiers coming, whole um, communities would just run to avoid being picked on to carry uh, the baggage of a Roman soldier. How? Now, the other thing to point out here is that it was unlawful, it went against the Roman military code to allow someone to carry your baggage for more than a mile. And if that happened, the Roman soldier could be fined or disciplined for breaking the military code. It was a strange system. So how then is the oppressed man to resist this evil to Jesus, uh, according to Jesus? Not by befriending the soldier, not by driving a dagger into his ribs, but by signalling his intent to carry his burden for a second mile. And Jesus' logic here is that the peasant, by this unexpected action, is taking the initiative back in the situation. Imagine the soldier's surprise when, having reached the mile marker, he reluctantly reaches to take his baggage back and the peasant says, oh no, let me carry it another mile. See, why would he want to do that? What's he up to? Is, is this a sort of a provocation? Is he trying to get the soldier fined or disciplined? Was he being kind? See, the soldier, of course, is completely uh, thrown off guard. He had enjoyed the feeling of superiority while the peasant carried his baggage for a mile. But now the table seemed to have been turned. The peasant, by his cunning, non-violent action, has put the soldier into a quite a difficult position. <laughs> you see, he would break the military code and be punished if he accepted the offer of the peasant. So imagine a Roman soldier pleading with a peasant to have his pack or have his baggage back. You see, Jesus, again, Jesus is helping oppressed people to find a way to pro protest and neutralise the evil of injustice. And he is encouraging his followers to achieve this, not through violence, not through becoming doormats, but by his... Um, what you might call his third way of non-violent resistance. And it takes courage to do that. So Jesus abhors both passivity and violence. And he advises us to oppose evil and oppression. And it's the likes of, you know, you can think of people like Martin Luther King and Mohandas Gandhi to name but two, who have shown the way in recent times of how to live out Jesus's teaching against the domination systems of their times. So, to bring these thoughts to a close, let's remind ourselves that at the heart of the Bible's message is a call 
to God's people to bring about the will of God on this earth as it is in heaven. And this was the focus of the gospel preached and lived by Jesus. And his teaching, particularly his parables, his actions, uh, his relationships, his values, in fact his whole life was about showing people a new way of living, one that was inextricably linked to a relationship with the living God. And at the heart of his message was a challenge to the cruel and ungodly domination and exploitation by the elite of ordinary people. He was the champion of the poor, the hungry, the sick, the despised, the weak. In fact, all those who were regarded as of no account by the rulers of their time. And the work of championing justice was at the heart of his message. In fact, he sternly, do you remember, he sternly rejuked the religious people, the religious leaders of his day, for neglecting, as he said it, the more important matters of the law, mer- justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So, a question for us. Does there not come a time in the life of every believer and every church when a voice uh, inside us says, now what? You see, we've been introduced to Jesus. We've been converted. We've been saved. We've asked him to heal us to redeem us, to reconcile our relationships, to purify us. We sing the songs and we read the word. But after all that, there is a voice, is there not, that simply says, or simply asks, yeah, but now what? So for us in the 21st century church, the Bible leaves us with a challenge. How are we going to help bring about the central message of the Lord's Prayer, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And as we look at our own families, our church family, our local community and the wider needs of a desperately needy and hurting world, what can we do to put flesh on the gospel which unashamedly champions the cause of the have-nots. And, of course, many of us will be thinking uh, of those the system abuses in our current day. And the sickening murder of George Floyd shook many of us, didn't it, to the core and made us sit up and look at ourselves in a way that perhaps uh, we have never, uh, never have and cause us to ask ourselves, what can I do about the curse of racism, the stigmatization of other persecuted minorities? What can the church do? What does the Bible say? Well, next week, 
uh, we're going to home in on the issue of racism that is, that is at the forefront of many of our thinking today. What does the Bible say, if anything, on racism? And what part has the Bible played in the promotion or otherwise of racism over the centuries? That's for next week.